Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast. My name is Natalie Nahai, and in the second series, I'll be exploring our relationship with the living environment. These 10 intimate conversations will touch upon everything from psychology, sustainability, and human behavior, to political and economic systems, and the narratives we inhabit to make meaning of our place in this world. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be talking with Kate Pincott, a designer, curator and co-founder of Nafisi Studio, a British-Persian duo safeguarding traditional handcrafted joinery in Horsham in England. When I first met Kate, it was back in London several years ago when she was working as a product designer at Facebook and curating an international talk series called This Happened, which explored the making process within interaction design. So really fascinating stuff. And it's only really recently when I received a curious email marked Into the Woods that our paths crossed again and I realised her story would make a wonderful addition to this show. So Kate, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. Thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> Me too. Um, and it's also quite selfish because I'm really curious um, to start by asking you about how and why you've made this transition from tech to trees, leaving behind 30 years of life in London, successful career at Facebook. And now it seems like maybe this is just my projection, but uncharted territory of woodworking and climate action in a small cottage beside a forest. It sounds to me very romantic, although I'm sure it's extremely hard work. So what moved you to take this leap or to make this move into a different different sphere? <laughs> Good question. It does sound kind of crazy when you say it like that. Inspiring, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I, um, I think it was quite a lot to do with love, actually. Um, oh. Because I, I love London and I've grown up there all my life. Um, but when I met my husband, Abby, um, before we were together, um, he was this kind of forest man who was into music and spent six years in the desert and, um, was into yoga. (laughs) (laughs) And I was this tech city lady who was always busy schedule full of meetings parties events um you know you name it um going to art galleries and just buzz 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 Mm. and um and I was really attracted and curious to his kind of slower pace of life and when I went to visit him on his farm and um you know had my first experience of making a fire from scratch in the garden um and then I had my first experience of kind of chopping some wood um and then kind of just really got into this kind of slower pace of life mm. and um, and realised that I could spend a lot more quality time um, with Abby. So I think that's slowly how I got kind of seduced into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of looked back and realised that I'd made quite a big transition and um, so it didn't actually feel that, um, it didn't feel that jolting, you know, mm. didn't feel that harsh contrast. So it was more like maybe one step and then another and a, a sense of kind of 
discovery down a new path and then when you look back you realize the distance that's been walked yeah exactly and and perhaps maybe um that's kind of more of my living situation but I think the you know the move from tech and a career in tech to um you know being a woodworker is probably more <laughs> of a a bigger jump <laughs> I can imagine people um, probably do a bit of a double take they're like what you do what now so what actually were there any inflection points where you kind of just thought okay there is a decision to be made now um were there any of these sort of points along the way yeah definitely I think um at my job um I obviously realized that I was working you know lots and lots of hours and um it was taking up a lot of my time Mm. um and I just longed to be back you know home and in the forest and um um, with Abby and uh, Abby obviously runs uh, his own woodworking business and so um, slowly our, our kind of both me and Abby one day just kind of looked at each other and we we're like why can't we just join each other <laughs> why why do we have to live these separate lives we can we can spend more time together mm. um, if we work together and I was already helping him with things like the website and um, you know just in his design as well you know um, I like to try and simplify and edit things out so um, I was obviously trying to do that um, with our woodworking and our design as well mm. um, and so naturally it kind of merged and both of us love Eames you know Ray and Charles Eames <laughs> and so we found this idea of you know working and designing together quite exciting um, mm. and aspiring so I think the biggest point was deciding when to leave my job um, and and I think that I probably decided that um, quite a long time before I did, yes. uh, but I just didn't know when. Um, and and I think that was a difficult one to make, you know, for anyone that's umming and ahhing about it. Um, yeah. It can be difficult because once you are excited about your new thing coming up, it's very difficult to have the motivation to go into something every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to really make a conscious effort to be really grateful um, for everything that I was learning and receiving um, in my tech world and, and to really make the most of it, you know, and really suck it up and really um, put my all into it um, so that 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 time didn't drag on and um, that we could, you know, go in smoothly to the next phase. And I wonder with that, because I think most of us, even when we're doing something that we feel passionate about or when we're doing things that are exciting and stimulating and with my own experience of this as well at which point because there is that kind of inner balance of being stimulated being excited by stuff feeling like you have something to learn something maybe to contribute and at the same time the sense of uh well maybe my desires or my um rhythm that I want to have in my life maybe that's changing and deepening and slowing and I don't know if it's just to do with the stage of life that we're in or a response to a hyper-connected, super-speedy lifestyle that many of us experience as daily life. But at what point does that balance between those two things of gratitude for this extraordinary opportunity to be in these fast-paced industries? Mm. What point does that become less weighty than <laughs> the the longing for something else? Yeah, I think I think the it's balance, isn't it? Um, mm. And I think um, for me in in my world, I just really wanted to spend you know slow down and um and spend more quality time with with my loved ones Mm. um and and by myself as well Mm. um I was craving just to spend time by myself and to make with my hands more than make with the screen so I think 
for everybody that balancing point is going to be different and a lot of people they have their techie um, fast-paced jobs and lives and um, you know and they also find time to to wind down and and to have time for themselves you know so I I hugely respect that Um, but I think for me um, I wanted to spend the majority the most the biggest part you know the Mm. biggest part of the pie (laughs) the biggest part of my day um, more in touch with myself and in touch with nature and I think that's what helped me make my decision. Mm. It's like, where is the biggest chunk of my time going? Mm. Um, and that, that helped me to kind of uh, make that decision and find that balance. Mm. It's a nice way of thinking about it. Um, and I wonder, with, with that transition, did you experience any resistance or people generally fairly supportive and kind of interested to hear more? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was any resistance from my uh, close friends or family um, because um, they say, "Oh, yeah, Kate, you love hugging trees, and you know, you're, <laughs> you're, um, you've always want, you've always done work for charity and things like that." So they they saw me as they didn't really see me in the corporate rat race kind of thing yeah. ever. Stay, <laughs> they didn't really see me um, staying there for too long, mm. but um, I think they did. Um, they were a bit shocked maybe um, because and and people keep saying how brave it is um, Mm. because I think they find it a bit scary the idea of just dropping something that you know a lot about and starting from scratch and learning obviously I'm not a woodworker I do not have (laughs) years of skills in making um, so um, that can I think for a lot of people be daunting and also the pay cut you know I've I've had a comfortable salary um, for the last 10 years um, Mm. and now I'm going to be living a much humbler existence and I think again that um, really scares people because there's no longer that cushion or kind of convenience um, buying so yeah I think people shocked but no resistance. (laughs) So let's talk about that shock thing because I've been wondering this a lot as well especially as we've started to hear more about the ways in which we consume how, how damaging the ways in which we consume actually are um, and how maybe the, the structures of capitalism are starting to be challenged by various different voices. So I'm starting to contemplate these things a lot more and I wonder about the attachment that we have to standards of living that maybe those of us who are in privileged positions where we have comfortable salaries and a comfortable existence, um, maybe this sense of kind of not needing as much as we think we need and people who see those of us going off into a different direction saying, oh, well, that's really courageous. Maybe it's also about a reframing of what it means to live the good life, so to speak. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Like on, yeah, living that more humble existence, as you put it earlier. Mm, Yeah, I deeply agree with that. I think think that it's quite difficult to have thoughts of your own of what you think is an ideal lifestyle Mm. if you're so busy reacting to everybody else's. Mm. So when you're constantly on Instagram and Facebook on Pinterest and looking at what is the best way to live and what other people are doing, it's there's not much time to really think about whether you agree with it and what you know what is your vision for your life. And so I think um, and and that said, you know, for offline news as well, you know, magazines and and um, mm. whatever other stimulus we are having um, around us. I love the inspiration, but I think equally important to get inspiration and research is to also kind of spend time thinking about what is good for you and what you like yeah. um, and, and, and can then creating that vision for yourself. Um, because I think it's, it's quite quickly you realise, um, you know, when you kind of list the top most important things to you on your hand, um, not many of those five things will include stuff you know, mm. um, and you could probably fit most of it in a backpack or in a caravan. Mm. Um, 
and so I think yeah I think you're right when when people start to really get to the core of what makes them happy and what they love um they don't need as much um physical um or or emotional comfort Mm. around them and I think because when I think about life in London because I now live in Barcelona um kind of accidentally um when I was living there it was very exciting and it's it's uh, like a maelstrom of cultural things to do beautiful food to eat amazing museums to go and spend an afternoon in like there's a lot of stimulation it's really I found that even though it was very exciting once I had a bit of time and distance away from it this sense of reconnecting with myself in a different way in a quieter way Mm. in a more contemplative way was suddenly much more available to me um what are some of the deeper insights that maybe you've experienced spending more time with yourself with your beloved among the trees, doing this kind of woodworking, learning these new skills. Yeah, I um, think um, one of the biggest concerns when I left London was that I would have, you know, fear of missing out and I wouldn't go to any of the cool cultural events or mm. things that were on the sea and things were happening as much and that I'd miss out. Um, but kind of what shocked me was that I, I actually have more quality time with my mates than I ever have in my life mm. um, because when they come to me, I, I really give them my full presence. I'm really there. You know, I've cleared out time to be with them. I'm not just fitting them in a coffee break in yeah. a Starbucks somewhere <laughs> or, you know, um, oh, let's go and watch this movie that I want to watch and then you spend the whole time in silence. You know, like, <laughs> what's yeah. that about? Or, you know, oh, I've only got... Um, can you come with me to this event that I need to go to anyway? And then, you know, you're busy looking at this art exhibition instead of, you know, really just being together and now Mm. I can spend more quality time walking with them and chatting and 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 also they sleep over normally because Mm. you know it is a bit further out and I normally get them for the whole weekend and Mm. so I really noticed how much better relationships I have with my friends um since moving away Mm. um so I think that's a huge shock for me (laughs) and in terms of like kind of events and the buzz and the you know the cool things that are going on that I love about London um I think that I just actually plan for them you know Mm. so um I can have both basically I can have the beautiful scenery of the countryside and I can have the peaceful mornings but I can also go into London and make sure I don't miss that theatre or um, that cool exhibition or that gig Mm. um if you actually count the number of times that you know you go to these events um the ones that you care about they're easy to plan in so I I feel like I have both Uh, and whereas when I was in London I only had London yeah and it's hard to know what it's like outside of London when you're immersed in it and it's such a seductive place to be which I know it's not the case for all Mm. of us of course it depends on time and context but um yeah I want I want to ask you a bit about the ways in which your working has changed as well so you're previously the software designer and curator for this happened London and now you're taking what I'd imagine are some of those same uh, honed skills and applying them in a new direction learning about the climate crisis and creating a new project called Earth Happened. How are these projects linked or not linked as the case may be and how are they how are they informing the way in which you're using your skills now to kind of do sort of more of the work that you're caring about? Mm. Yeah they're definitely linked it's it was kind of an evolution um so when I um, left uni and I was freelancing and contracting, um, I did quite a number of years, eight years contracting before I had a full-time job. Mm. So um, one of my ways to um, stay in contact with the physical interaction world while I was mostly in the digital um, was to do a talk series all about 
kind of physical digital projects mm. and um I I went to I attended one because it was originally founded by Joel Gethin Lewis and mm. then um Alex Deschamps took over and I was there with when Alex was there um she's the founder of um the Goodnight Lamp and I was just inspired by her and what she was doing and I loved this format this kind of mm. Pecha Kucha format of listening to talks um but my favourite parts were when people described all the things that went wrong <laughs> and all the, you know, the mistakes and the, the tension around it. And I loved hearing how people managed to deal with that. And that was my favourite bit. So when I um, decided to take on the, the talk series, and I did that for four years, mm. I would always focus my speakers on talking about um, the mishaps and the problems and the failures. Um, because I think that's what really resonates, whether you're, you know, a student just coming out of a, a creative degree or whether you're, mm. um, you know, a practitioner that's been there for years. It's always intriguing to hear how people get around things. And and I feel that naturally, as I was more interested in the climate, I therefore wanted to focus um, these designers and thinkers and tinkers and creative minds on, on that topic. Mm. So the last one I did was called... Um, earth happens and I got speakers who are working and artists and designers who are working in the um, climate sector to talk about projects they're working on and what happened tell me what <laughs> happened so then they told me their journey and their story and what happened and I just everything in my body was saying yes 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 I want to hear more of this and I want to do a whole series that's exactly the same format but just about you know earth projects and um what put me off, that was like last year, end of, end of 2018. And I was going to kick it off um, in January of this year. And I just wanted to pause. And I felt like before I launch into doing and making and talking, I really want to just research up what's happening. Mm. And is this really the best contribution? Because yes, I'm kind of just doing this as an extension of my own personal research. <laughs> so I'm getting all these people together in a room just so that I can meet them and I can answer my own selfish questions, <laughs> basically. And is this a really good use of everyone's time? Mm. And perhaps I could do that research um, by myself and perhaps there would be wiser more um you know effective ways of actually contributing to the situation mm. so i've kind of i've put that on pause um but the one event that i do want to do this year around um this is to learn and to help people work out what is the most effective way to lobby our government mm, brilliant and so when i do put you know when i do do some kind of um event or workshop for earth happened it will be around that and and because everybody has a different approach and I, I love the work of extinction rebellion um who i know that you've spoken to as well mm. um but i'd really like to know as a designer as a creative as a maker what can i do to get involved in in helping um lobby the government and so that's kind of the, the evolution. And I'm hoping that those speakers will also talk about their <laughs> learnings and what happened and what they made mistakes with and, and, and real tangible examples of, mm. of lobbying that they've done to make change. And then from that, what they've learned. That sounds like such a useful, powerful, rich event. And also inspiring as well as practical, because I think one of the things that I found tricky, and I grappled with a lot of these questions, thinking about even just doing this podcast, I was thinking, what skills can I deploy where I can, you know, try and contribute something meaningful and also do the research myself. But I think what you're describing is something in which you are curating people together in such a way that um, you're making all of their voices available for people to hear. So there's one place to find these resources. You're getting to hear about practical steps and pooling insights and knowledge that people can then take with them and try out in their own um, 
localities. I think that's, that just sounds so exciting. I shouldn't be fangirling on this podcast, but I am slightly, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, and, and also deeply rooted in, in experience, you know, because I go to a lot of design talks that are mm. all about theory and hypothesizing. And I, there's lots of room for that. I love, you know, mm. thinking about speculative futures. I love it. But I also really like to root myself in, in real experience of what's yes. happened. Yeah. Um, and that's why I like getting advice from people who've actually done and tried things rather than from people who say, ah, oh, yes, I think we should go that direction. What do you think? <laughs> I have no experience in this matter, but... <laughs> I think a dose of humility is always a bit of a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, so I wonder with that sort of, with that sort of input, um, what you think about pathways forward to raise awareness about what's happening, empower people to take actions on various different levels. What's been your experience about the change that you would like to see in your own life and maybe some of the conversations that your transition has sparked with your friends? Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think people struggle to know what difference they can make individually um, mm. for the climate crisis. Um, I think people struggle to know um, how the, the gestures that they do make, how they'll actually add up to the bigger picture. Um, and I think they have a mistrust of the information they're given because, you know, we're told to recycle and to save water and to do our bit but then we also get told that even if everybody did that that still would only account for the global 25 percent of carbon emissions and so mm. we still got 75 percent to go because that's all run by corporates so then you know it leaves you feeling mm. rather disheartened that all of your effort hasn't actually um made the the bigger you know the biggest amount of difference you were hoping yes um and actually that the power is in someone else's hands and so I think um, any work that I do moving forward is to get people to feel empowered and have a sense of agency Um, Mm. and I think that people we are creative you know we are creative beings as humans and we like to work with our hands and when you make something tangible in front of you you have huge agency. You see it form mm. right in front of your eyes. You can even cut your finger sometimes and it hurts, and, but it's right <laughs> in front of you and, and you feel alive. And, and that kind of making and that spirit is hugely um, empowering and I think healthy and really good for mental health. Um, and it makes people feel like they can do something. Um, and, and more than that, it brings people together to talk, to make mm. together and to, to collaborate. And I think those um, feelings, those emotions, those values are what we need to, need to build, you know, that future that we're looking for. So although, you know, making things with our hands is not directly, you know, a parallel solution to um, the climate crisis, I think that it is uh, a kind of antidote to any crisis, um, if that makes sense. Mm. And so you talk about this process of making, which I love and I, I get it, you know, when you create something that wasn't there before and it's physical and it's tangible, it's, there's something magical about that, especially the effort that goes into it um, and something that you have to pay with with your time and your physical skill and labour and attention. How, how has this process altered the way in which you relate with yourself, with others, with the natural world? Any of those big questions. <laughs> yeah, I think that... Um definitely something big that came up for me was that um I'm not very patient (laughs) (laughs) I want things now um I could blame Amazon Prime um for just giving me the most convenient you know lifestyle I could blame Netflix on binge that I have the the next episode immediately in front of me um Mm. 
but it's also just the pace at which we live our lives you know you can contact someone across the world immediately um yeah and therefore it changes my expectations of of myself and my body and really myself and my body hasn't changed (laughs) um and it's completely unreasonable to um expect us as humans to react in the same way because we're not robots and we're not machines so I think having to learn patience um and learn that I'll get the best from myself when I give myself rest and space and quiet um and uh, yeah and self-love really um uh, I think that's the small things <laughs> <laughs> yeah it sounds um it sounds simple doesn't it it sounds cliche but I think um I've tried to apply a childlike curiosity a childlike love to everything so like in the mm. same way that I, I feel like I'm becoming a child again by you know running around in the fields and spending all day with my family um like you did when you were a kid um I'm also having that childlike curiosity for a brand new thing that you know I don't know anything about and I've also got that kind of childlike care um you know if a, if a child came up to you and said that they hurt their foot you'd never say well you were doing going too fast and you shouldn't have done that and you should you say oh god I'm so sorry you poor thing you know so I'm trying to give that same kind of childlike love to myself and um yeah that sounds like a very loving uh compassionate practice um how do you do that (laughs) how do I do that Mm. um I guess I still hear my critical voice in my head um saying oh you stupid idiot oh you're you're rubbish or something um, mm. But then I try and back that voice up and say, it's okay, baby Kate. You know, I kind of talk to the baby per- version of myself. Oh. I say, it's okay. Mm. I know that you didn't mean that. I know that you're trying or I know that um, you put a lot of effort into that or um, you're just learning. That's okay. So I, I kind of just, I, mm. I sound psychotic. When you, <laughs> now you're asking no, no, no. me like, oh, I have a voice in it my head. Wise. But <laughs> I do, I kind of talk to the baby Kate. I talk to my baby self. Mm. Um and if I have a tough time or tough conversation, I kind of talk to that inner... Because I think that's still there, you know. I don't, I don't think that yes, your, your yes. kind of inner child goes anywhere. I think you just learn... You just have more layers on top of it, you know. Yeah. Um, so... And it's kind of funny because now that I've become quite articulate talking to baby Kate, <laughs> I think that the people around me are as well. Um, because my husband says that... Um, my voice sometimes changes as well um so so when I make jokes I I kind of I my voice very softens and so instead of having a kind of corporate voice um Mm. I'll say things like oh did you like that (laughs) and you'll be like oh baby Kate baby Kate's coming out and I'm like what are you talking about I'm I'm a serious businesswoman you know you should take me seriously and he's like no no but it's wonderful and it's beautiful and he says but your your inner voice is coming in and I love that because you're not scared of judgment and you're not scared of being silly and Mm. and so that's interesting that that never really kind of came out before as well See, that's so fascinating. And I, there's so many elements there that I want to pull out. So the first thing about talking to oneself or different parts of oneself, I found that to be really enlightening and um, empowering and just in my own life as well, but also talking to other people to be able to address aspects of yourself because we're so multi-layered. We're not just one personality and that's it. We have all these substrates and it's kind of like you'd look at a beautiful carpet and you wouldn't just say, well, it's made of one thread. Of course it's not. It's made of all of these mm. beautiful coloured threads and they all interact with one another. So I, I love, love what you said about that. Um, but also these expectations that we place upon ourselves that, that we have to be a certain way or show up or present a certain way in order not to be judged, in order to fit in, in order to um, live a life that we think we want to live. So I wonder, what have you learned about 
the expectations that maybe both we and others place upon ourselves uh, and the way that we live our lives. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I haven't really um, had too many kind of um, people being like, oh, you know, you're crazy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're going to be poor for the rest of your life don't you know how to save for a retirement plan? Like, (laughs) I haven't had too much kind of negativity like that. But I have had people say things like, oh, cool, Um, I'm so jealous. I I always wanted to be a woodworker. I always wanted to work with my hands. Mm. Um, And so I'll say, oh, cool, I didn't know that about you. You know, what what stopped you kind of thing? Why why Mm. didn't you? Um, And generally, people just what I've learned is they want to play it safe and they want a guarantee of, of, of income. And they want, um, they want to be able to say that they have certain kind of, um, ideas of what it means to be successful. So they'll say, well, by the time I'm 30, I need to have my own house and I need to have, um, it needs to be like a respectable house, not like a student house. And it needs to be, um, um, you know, our own. It needs to be not shared and things like that. Mm-hmm. So you know, I hear that and I go, "Whoa, that's a lot to unpack there." You, in order mm-hmm. to be considered adult and successful, you can't live with other people. That's very isolating. Wow. And mm-hmm. then, in order mm-hmm. to be, you know, happy and feel like you've earned enough, it ha- you have to have bought your own house. I mean, I'm like, "Whoa, that's really difficult these days." You know, house prices. So it feels like there's lots of kind of ide- ide- ideologies, maybe, or like yes. ideals mm-hmm. of what what it means to be successful around and then this is obviously just the limited group of mates around me you know and my um where I live um it's probably very different in different countries but um yeah I I find that quite a heavy burden to 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 carry for people it sounds Mm. quite stressful whereas I don't really feel like that at all um I don't have any expectations on how I need to be at a certain age um um but I understand that pressure of wanting to feel sorted and wanting to feel secure and safe um, mm. and wanting some kind of guarantee. Yeah, but it's so interesting, isn't it? Because we, we operate on on the assumption that if we acquire these things as whatever our society um, suggests, uh, so there's like a script, if we follow the script, then we'll be secure, we'll be safe, we'll have made it, quote unquote. Mm. The thing is, life is this ever-moving, changing thing. There's not such a thing as making it or arriving because it's not stationary and I think that's one of the most Mm. insidious kind of illusions that we've bought into which is when this happens then I'll be happy Mm. safe fulfilled and it's going to stay there and it's going to be the state of permanence which is um I think is something which then generates all this anxiety because we're we're guarding ourselves against something which isn't even we can't even achieve the security that we want. I mean, we can achieve certain levels of security, of course. I'm talking about mm. if it's good to save for your pensions or if you want to send your kids to school or whatever it might be, then maybe you need to have certain resources. But I don't know, beyond a certain point, there's so little that we can do to control the current of our lives in mm. certain respects. And so guarding against that seems crazy because it's not even possible, I think. At least that's mm. where my mind is at at the moment. Maybe someone yeah. will come along and go, no, you're wrong, here's some evidence. Um, why are we so reluctant to surrender ourselves into a little bit more uncertainty? I'm not talking about like giving up all our plans and, and you know, hopes for the future, but just to give ourselves a little bit more freedom to, to deconstruct our ideas and to play and to contemplate and to take risks. 
I think it's, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert. But for <laughs> me, I think, uh, I think it comes from not knowing yourself well enough. Because when you know who you are and you know where you stand, that clarity of what you want to do just comes as a byproduct naturally. And so there's less kind of hesitation or anxiety or unsureness of whether this is the right decision. Because you just know yourself. You know what you like, what you don't like. You know who you are. You know what's going to break you and what's going to bend you. And you know what's going to make you thrive. And so mm. I think I think when people um, are less aware of of those things, then I think, yeah, it is quite a daunting experience. It's like jumping into... Um, you know, a real mixed bag of cards or, or black or something. Yeah, something unknown and scary. Mm, um, mm. So I, I do I do get it. I think also the other thing is, it depends on your personality, like whether you like something that's... I think I've always been quite risk... <laughs> risk... Um, attracted to risk. I quite like a yeah, little bit of risk. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I find that exciting. And um, whereas other people would like to play it safe. So I, I, I understand that as well. It's down to your temperament. Um so I think I'd be bored if everything was always the same and consistent. Um, mm. So I think doing, you know, I might change my mind in another five years and do something completely different. <laughs> but um, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a, a personality thing as well. Mm. So what, what has been the biggest challenge in all of this, do you think? Mm. Um I think slowing down. <laughs> yeah. Natalie, 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 I find that difficult. <laughs> I sometimes sit and I feel just so inadequate and unproductive because oh. I've not done anything or made anything. Mm. And I just struggle with that because I know that I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm. But in my old life, I could have done five emails and I could have, you know, shopped all these different things and I, I could have booked this and that and I could have got this done and I could have, you know, made this for someone and I could have just achieved so many things and it makes me feel like, I, you know, I'm ticking things off my list. But in this work, you know, you can spend hours and hours and hours chipping at something mm. and then you break it and then you have to start again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> there's nothing you can do apart from just take it on the chin and 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 keep going and and just be patient so that's been really tough mm. um and then the other side to that is instead of working with like 50 people and in three different time zones um like I was before um and when I say 50 people I mean 50 teams oh wow <laughs> um um now I'm working with one person and I think that is difficult because I think in a in a larger scenario you can probably um you can probably set a, a, you know some some kind of rules for working um but when there's one other person mm. there's not that many different inputs it's literally you and them <laughs> so it's your way of working and their way of working and there's a kind of a um there's a real head on kind of you need you you really have to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you have to listen to each other in a corporate world, but <laughs> there's two humans that are they're not over Skype. They are right in front of each other mm-hmm. and um you really have to listen to each other's bodies and each other's um you know needs and I know a lot of people say the opposite. They say, "Oh, well if you know, if you work with 50 people, you can definitely work with one." But mm-hmm. I think the expectation changes like what what you expected to give and take changes so you know abby is as i said a desert man um (laughs) lives in the desert doesn't hasn't touched a spreadsheet in his life so when i say something like oh can you just chuck that in our google doc 
and um, just ping that to me. You know, he melts down. He's like <laughs> melting. He's like, what on earth does that mean? You use three words in there that I don't even know what they mean. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of going on a jargon cleansing at the moment where I'm trying to get rid of acronyms and any kind of tech speak mm. um, and reevaluate my patterns of habit using um, the computer and, and, and trying to go a bit more analog so we write a lot of our to-do lists on paper now mm. um <laughs> that's so satisfying um and yeah <laughs> just trying to balance basically with another person mm. but um yeah so it's obviously quite a lot of change what's been your biggest joy in all of this so far the joy oh so many joys <laughs> um waking up in the morning and hearing bird song mm. it's beautiful uh my alarm going off which I still use um but and not feeling like I suddenly have to run to a meeting. That's really cool. Um, spending more time with, with Abdullah just is wonderful. I get to spend all day with him. And um, yes, we have our own things to do in our own space. You know, we have separate times. But um, I love eating together over the fire. We cook on the food outside. Oh, so nice. love cycling more, going um, on walks together. Um, where I live the the sky is so clear mm. um, I can see all the stars and so we just kind of can, can you know sit having a cup of tea on our bench and just look up and and gaze for a bit and just oh breathing <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 definitely a lot more chill um, um, mm. and 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 I guess also just itching that itch so as I said earlier like I love technology and I, I don't feel like I've turned my back on that um it's more like adding something in addition to it. Mm. So I've been able to add in this tangible element. Um, and maybe in the future, you know, my, my, my started off my career off in electronics. So maybe, <laughs> maybe, um, you know, the electronic world and the tech world and the physical world will all come in together in some product in the future. Who knows? Mm. Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. Um, but just itching that itch of using my hands, um, been learning wood turning and things like that has been really good it sounds like there's a lot of joys in there (laughs) (laughs) so do you think your story and this is kind of a bit of a lick your finger and hold it up in the air but do you think your story is part of a larger wave of change Mm. I've definitely heard a lot more people um talking about um you know doing more handmade things um and um wanting to get more in touch with nature because that's definitely like I feel like that's definitely like a zeitgeist thing um mm. and I think being in Britain particularly uh, we had a huge heritage of making um and mm. our creative industry is is one of our biggest um industries so I think that's probably natural like wanting because of Brexit like wanting to get back in touch with our roots as makers and creatives and mm. I think that makes a lot of sense um but I think also there's the element of being people being fed up with being passive on their phones. And as I said earlier, we are creative beings. You know, we have, we have life in us that makes us want to make. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think that people just want to have more um, active role in, in, in the, the, the area and space around them. Um, so I do feel like that is a, it's also like you know in history of art we have peaks and troughs so you know you have Mm. the digital age and then you have this retro punk steampunk analog reaction which is you know a a nostalgia back to the time when you could actually see inside machines and then you have this slick kind of 
you know, hiding everything behind the white and silver lines of the apple kind of look aesthetic. And then we come back to this, you know, oh, I like the analogue. I like to see inside a car and inside a watch. I want to see inside, you know. And so Mm. I think that this peaks and troughs is very, this is a natural kind of sine wave. It's a natural undulating rhythm. Um, So now that we've had this amazing connectivity, with our phones and technology it's natural that we want to have some kind of um you know uh introspection and time alone and and time to breathe so i I see that all as a kind of a breathing pattern of us as a human species Mm. you know Um, but i'm not going to be throwing out my phone anytime soon because you know i put my (laughs) business post on instagram and it's amazing that my mates across the world can see it. That's awesome. And I can also see what's happening inside Sartre Gallery right now. And I can also <laughs> see what's happening in the middle of the Himalayas by um, a group called the Adam Tribe, who live completely off the grid. Um, wow. Definitely worth checking out, by the way. They are awesome. Um, they built a whole hotel and kind of like... Um, kind of refuge haven <laughs> up there in, in the middle in the feet of the Himalayas and you know from whatever extreme you want to dip your nose into you can still tap in and, and see those things um mm. but I think people are looking for that balance um and I think tech being something which brings an addition to our lives but doesn't make servants of us yeah doesn't replace that kind of um face-to-face um human interaction it just um, enrich enriches it I think yeah, and I think that sense of presence that one has when one's physically in the, well, in the company of others is, um, it's a very, for me, it's a very different experience than having someone behind a screen. <laughs> mm. So you talked earlier briefly about the exciting um, thoughts that you're having about work with the climate crisis and ways to contribute meaningfully. So I kind of want to close with a few questions around that. Um when it comes to that side of things, what's your biggest concern for the future? I'm concerned that we'll bury our heads and just mm. not make enough change in time. Um, and that even if the government does listen to us and we do make an, um, the right laws and put them in place, that there won't be enough community amongst us um, because we've learned to be so independent from each other. Technology has made mm. us so um, kind of separate and um although that's beautiful, it it means that we don't ask for help as much, you know, and it's so Mm. important that we ask for help and that we live as a community and that we work together. And so even if all the laws do go in place, will we, will we come together enough? Um, That's what kind of concerns me. And what vision are you working towards achieving either or both on a personal level and on a more macro level? I would love it if um, I could bring back that kind of respect and kind of value for handmade things. Mm. Because if I look at somewhere like Japan, for instance, they see um, the craftsmen in such high prestige. Um, like mm. they really respect that skill and they see it as just like maybe in the UK, we would um, aspire to be a surgeon um, or like a high level doctor. They they see that in the craftsmen and and I love that. And I, I so I, I would love to help bring back that kind of handmade creativity to people's daily lives um, because, A, it gives them that agency and it makes them feel, you know, they, they can do and build things, but also it brings them together. And so when they see things and, you know, and in the shops and stuff, when it's handmade, they'll appreciate it more. And then their whole house will be filled with, you know, more soul and more character and, and less plastic and less um, kind of, you know soulless stuff 
um, mm. and you know you'll, they'll feel more connected to their area and they'll know the people that have made the items that they've made, bought and you know that whole kind of um, more kind of sustainable local um, vision and more human it sounds also that that builds in threads of connection and belonging that if we're buying things beautiful things that have been made near nearby that we know the people who are making them um that, that there is that sort of richness of it's like a an invisible touch or through line uh that you just don't get in mass-produced things in the same way and it's not that mass-produced things are bad per se like i'm i'm speaking to you on a laptop and i've got an amazing zoom mic like these things are mass-produced and and i benefit greatly from them but um but just like the orientation shifting more towards something which has been made by the hands of another that has its own um, story to it almost. Mm. And, and building that value into our culture, right? Because you can't make people just suddenly care about it and appreciate it. Um, mm. Crafts often has been had this kind of lowly, doggy, you know, granny knitting kind of handkerchiefs, kind of um, not very aspirational or sexy or high end kind of um, imagery or kind of branding to it. Mm. Um, but I would love to make people um, see craft as something that highly beautiful, highly precious, uh, highly skilled mm. and, and highly desirable um, in their home. So for anyone who's thinking, listening to this, oh, maybe I want to dip my toe in or maybe I'm curious about making a change in my life and they're feeling like there's something that, that's there to explore. What advice might you might you offer them mm. well abby and i have been trying to um kind of harmonize a bit more with our surroundings with nature a bit um mm. and one of the easy ways to do that is just to try and get up in the morning earlier and go to bed um earlier because in the morning the birds are going like crazy i'm telling you <laughs> they are chatting <laughs> non-stop it's beautiful it's so noisy and then in the evening they all hush and they go to sleep and it's this wonderful silence and stillness and just doing that has really helped us to be more productive um and just yeah more in sync um with ourselves and with and and with um our environment and i think there are probably lots of other ways that you can do that but that's just one example but just generally to try and observe nature to try and um you know be a, be in nature and observe and analyze and see what you notice and then try and copy it and i know there are huge universities and swathes of academics <laughs> who are you know looking into biomimicry and and, yes. and academic <laughs> ways but i'm sure also we can get insights just from doing it ourselves just by looking around yeah. us and looking at how nature does something and then seeing if we can kind of copy from it or learn from it and i think this this direct experience um, feeds in to the rich tapestry of how we all learn um, and we, we kind of relegate it we go well let's read it in a paper and then only then will I decide that it's something that's valuable enough that's been peer-reviewed enough for me to integrate it in some way in my life and, and that's wonderful but also so is direct experience and direct relationship um, and craftsmanship yeah definitely I think that taps into um, what you were saying about um kind of like what is beauty um mm. because i feel that when you really know when you have time to observe something i think that's beautiful like that mm. that is beauty when you you take time and you pause and you understand something and and when you have those moments of of really thinking about what you really enjoy and what you like whether it's like a childhood memory, maybe like you had an ice cream with your grandparent or mm -hmm. a hug with your parents or something, um, then you kind of learn 
to distinguish between what you really like and what life is telling you to like. And I think mm. knowing that distinction is what helps you to then, you know, move forward and choose things that are really more valuable and meaningful to you and more beautiful. And that's when you can then flush out all these other voices that say, oh, yes, it has to be peer reviewed and it has to be have a star 10 on Yelp or whatever it is, you know, um, <laughs> or it hasn't had a got a four square rating, so I can't go there or, you know, that kind of thing. I think that kind of goes away because you know in yourself what you find beautiful. I think that's such a beautiful point to end on. Um, Kate, if people want to reach out to you or find out more about what you're up to, where are the best places for them to find you? Um, through our website, really, just through the contact page. Um, I check that like a hawk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to link in the show notes, nafisi.design, also earthhappen.com, if that becomes live, uh, with the projects that you're incubating, potentially. Yeah, we're mostly on um, on Instagram, actually, um, Nafisi Studio. Cool. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with me. It's actually personally very exciting and inspiring. And I'm sure everyone listening will have had some really nice moments, insights. <laughs> I'm still learning all the way, always learning. <laughs> and now you can check in with me, Natalie, to see if I haven't gone stir crazy in a few months. <laughs> see if I'm still feeling as zen and, and calm. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.